Our Old Testament reading today is Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you'd like to turn there and follow along, that's where I'll be reading from. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll start in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in, in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. You know, it's maybe um, because of our you know, perceived or desired autonomy, uh, but I do think it's common when we think about the law of God, right? God, who is the Lord, who has given his law, when we think about that law, we often think of it as a kind of a burden, it's something that is a bit of a drag to us. And it's true 
that in our sinful nature, the law does condemn us. It condemns sin. But in Christ, as we've been set free from the bondage to sin, we should also be able to see the law as ultimately a law of love. It's all about love. That's how we should see it. And in turn, we should actually love it. This is how Moses speaks of the, the center of the law, right? What is it at its heart? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? Our God. Notice how he says our God, right? Your God. He is one, and you should love him. That's at the center. Love your God. Love him completely with all of you, every part of you. Right? Love him completely. And when we have commandments in the Bible, it's, it's not as though we should hear them, as though these are the, the commandments or the rules of someone who is unjust, some kind of despot that wants to uh, tyrannize people. That's not right. It's, it's not vindictive. It's love. That's what we have here. It's, it's ultimately about love. And it's not just us showing God our love, right? It's commanded that we love him, but also by its very nature, God giving us his law is his expression of love to us. It's one of the ways that he shows us his love. This passage says that, you know, when your children, when your son asks you, why do we do these things? Why do we keep these commandments these rules? Why do we participate in these various festivals? Today, maybe your child would ask you, why do we go to church? Right? Why do we show up on days like this and participate like this? Why do we pray? Why do we, why do we give thanks before we eat? Right? Why do we do this, this family worship? Why is that? Well, the answer that we give is going to sound a little bit different, but in substance, it's actually the same answer that's commanded to be given right here in Deuteronomy 6. Why do you do this? Why do we do this? Verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In substance, what we say is the same. Because God saved us. Because Christ saved us, because he brought us out of slavery, out of bondage, because we belong to him. So now we follow what he has asked of us to follow, because we love him, because he has loved us. We do this then to commemorate what he has done, right? Not to earn it, but because of what he's already accomplished. God gave the law after bringing the people out of Egypt. Remember, they come out first. And it's only after that that he gives them the law. He gives us the law that he might bless us with his promises. That's what this goes on to say. Right? That we are to do these things. Why? So that we are preserved. Right? We, we fear him because he wants to give us good things. We want to receive the good. And so he's given us the law that we might do that. The laws in Scripture then are not for you as a believer 
just there to keep making you feel bad. Like that's not, that's not why they're there. This is the law of love. It's, it's there by God's spirit to direct us in how we might love God, how we might love one another. It's there to benefit you and your life in order to help you draw closer to the Lord. Right? The law of God is a law of love. The love of God for us is he teaches us for our good, as well as then our response of love to him as the one who is our Lord. Right? It's a guide so that we can better know, love, and fear God. As we belong to him, as he has purchased us with his blood, then it should, it should be to us a joy. Think about how the psalmist in Psalm 119 talks about the law of God. It's like honey, it's sweet. I love it. Right? I delight in it. I enjoy it. That's, we should have that heart. Right? And where we don't, we should say, okay, there's something going on. There's something wrong. Where, why is that? Right? Why am I not hearing these words as the love of God and my response of love? Why, what, what's going on there? And I think that will be revealing for us. Our New Testament reading and sermon text comes from Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn with me, you can find it in the Pew Bibles on page 980. Philippians chapter 2, we're focusing on uh, just three verses, 9 through 11, but I'm going to read from uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Hear then the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's holy and inerrant word for us this morning. We're continuing in uh, this series on the foundations of the faith and focusing today on the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why we're focusing in on these last three verses, although we need that context. It's important to have the full context that we just read. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not he could be Lord or can be Lord. Not that he's one among many lords. Not even that well, he can be your personal Lord if you so desire, but that's up to you. No, he is Lord. That's it, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that everyone, everywhere owes him their 
allegiance, their very life. Everyone everywhere must bow the knee to him. But he is not a, a conquering tyrant who came to overthrow a lawful ruler. He is not some dictator who comes to oppress any that he doesn't like. He is rather the rightful ruler. He is the rightful Lord. He's the rightful Lord, and it was through incredible, almost indescribable sacrifice that he has taken that rightful place on his throne. And that's why this context matters, is before we, we get to the point where the, the declaration of his lordship comes, his context is important. Because the eternal son of God, who was, was in and was himself the glory of the father, he took on flesh. He humbled himself, even though he was in the form of God, and he became a servant. So the rightful ruler, the rightful king, put on a servant's garb. That's what we are. That's, that's what humanity is, made to be servants of the Lord. We were made to serve God, but we rebelled. So he became us. He became the servant that we were supposed to be. And not only that, if that weren't enough, right, that he, the rightful ruler, becomes like a servant, that in itself is something. But beyond that, he continued to humble himself. He humbled himself to obedience, even obedience to the point of death, dying a criminal's death on the cross. But we know that's not the end of the story, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, right? Because of that, God has highly exalted him. So today, it is declared to you once again that Jesus Christ is Lord, he has been exalted above everyone else and everything else that might seek that title. And so the call to us, once again, is that our hearts might receive that and we would bow our knee and confess that he is Lord. And it's not, it's not optional, right, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether or not you will confess him as Lord isn't in question. Everyone will. The question is how and when. Right? How and when you will actually confess. But either way, we're told here that all will. Read again with me verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know, in the early church, the, the kind of central profession or confession of faith was Christ is Lord. Kurios Christos. And this got early believers in a lot of trouble because, not, not just because they said that necessarily, but because be, they said that, they also refused to say that Caesar is Lord. They refused to say that any other occupied that role. And the Roman emperor, the Caesar, wanted people to confess this of him, that he was the Lord, that he was the master and ruler on earth. But Christians refused to do that. They refused to honor him in the way that they would only honor Christ. And so many of them were put to death. Many godly men and women, fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters of ours, they were put to death because they refused to allow anyone or anything to be put in the place of Christ himself. 
And this, this word kurios, right, Lord, it's speaking of one who is uh, a master, right? We don't use the word Lord all the time. It's, it's not super common for us, in part probably because we reserve it for our Lord himself, at least we do in our culture. There are some cultures that will still use that, right, of certain offices that people hold, certain places of authority. We've maybe used the word master a little more. Master is also a word that's uh, becoming, I guess, politically incorrect, so it's not used a lot. But I think we, we have the right connotation more so when we hear the word master, probably, right? One who is in authority, who in some sense can tell you what you are to do. You think of a servant in a house that has a master. You think of, uh, you know, servants in a Jane Austen novel, right? They live in an estate, and they have a master, and they do as their master wants them to do. So, kurios, a lord, is someone who, in a certain sense, you belong to, who has authority over you, someone that can tell you what to do. And even just hearing that, we probably bristle a little bit. There's probably a a part of us that bristles at the very idea that there's someone that should be telling us what we are to do, right? We have a very you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do attitude, at least here in America, right? It's in our blood a little bit. But I think even for us, you can imagine a situation where someone telling you what to do, someone being your master or your lord, doesn't have to be antagonistic, right? I think, again, I think just with a democratic mindset, we, we just naturally have this, this way of thinking that, well, for anybody to be the master, well, then that's, that's a problem, right? The hierarchy itself, that's a problem. But we can think of ways that it might be okay. Think, for instance, uh, in the Old Testament, where we do have laws that involve, if, if a slave, usually these were debt slaves, right, somebody who had some debt that they couldn't, couldn't pay off, and so they, they become a servant or slave of whoever they owe the debt to in order to work that off. But there's a provision in the law of God that if a slave wanted to stay a slave for life because they loved their master so much that they wanted to stay in that position, they loved working for them, right, they, they, they wanted to keep doing that, they could do that. Right? There were certain things they had to do to show that, but, but that was something that was allowable. So even in the law of God, there's this assumption that it may happen that somebody wants to be in the position of a servant. They want to serve a master. Or I mentioned Jane Austen. Think of, of Pride and Prejudice, which I don't want any men in here to look down on me, but I have read and I do enjoy it. And I'm thinking of a scene, and actually it's, I'm thinking of a scene in the movie Right, the BBC version, the only good one. Please don't look down on me. I'm thinking of this scene where Elizabeth Bennett goes and she visits the estate of Mr. Darcy. She's with her aunt and her uncle. Mr. Darcy's not there, at least not at this time. And she comes into this estate, and number one, she all of a sudden realizes she's made a huge mistake in turning down his marriage proposal because he's got a killer estate. It's huge, it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful. But they're being shown around by an old woman who's a servant in the house. And this woman is just fawning over her master, which is Mr. Darcy. She's, she's talking about how she's gotten to see him grow up, see him take his place as the, the master of the estate, 
And she loves him. And she loves getting to serve him. And so you get this, this picture, or at least you can, I think, get this picture that to be a servant of one who is righteous, right, who rules well, who is, is just and kind and is wise in how he serves or how he, he rules, rather, that this is good, right? Someone who manages his estate well, oh, it would be good, actually, to serve someone in that position. That's the kind of place that it would be good to be a servant, the kind of place where you could be a servant and just be happy and serve forever. And when you hear that Jesus Christ is Lord, or Jesus Christ is Master, that he is someone in authority over you, that he is the right to rule your life, that is actually the reception we should have to it. Right? No, he is a good ruler. Right? He is a good Lord. He is a righteous ruler. He is no tyrant. He is no oppressor. Right? He is a savior, a good king. And God has exalted him. Right? He's given him a name above every name. Having a name above every name, right? a name shows something of your nature. Right? It tells something about your nature. A name describes and expresses something about, about your character, your nature, your position. So Abraham becomes Abraham because he'll be the father of a multitude. Jacob is named Jacob because he is a deceiver, but then his name is changed to Israel because he wrestles with God, and Israel means one who wrestles with God. Jesus has been given a name that is higher and greater than any because he has been exalted above anyone else, everything else. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Because all honor and glory is due him. So it's said that his name is higher. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess. And it says should, right, which leaves a kind of hypothetical open in a sense, but there, there does, within this should, hold a, a kind of imperative. No, you should, meaning this is something you need to do. Right? This is something that's going to happen. This is what everyone must do. Right? And, and that's the way in which it's not an option. No, everyone will ultimately do this. It's not optional whether or not to bow the knee and confess the tongue. But it's not being forced, at least not yet. Right? There, there is no force imposed at this point. To bow the knee is to show your reverence, your submission to him. And who should bow the knee to Jesus? Everyone. Right? And it's, it's total right, everywhere, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right, because there is none equal to him, everyone, everything, everywhere should bow the knee to him. 
There's none in heaven like him that is due the same reverence, that is due the same submission. He created the angelic beings. He created all spiritual beings. And everyone on earth, likewise, has been made in his image. Right? We reflect him. It's not the other way around. We're made in his image and we owe him everything. Right? Everything that we have comes from him. Our very life was given to us from him. And even more so, he has purchased you by his blood on the cross. So for you who are believers, you are doubly his, right? You belong to him twice over. And one of those spirits that have rebelled against him, who would lead a rebellion against him, who would seek to establish a kingdom apart from his and against his, what of the fallen angels? Well, we're told that in his resurrection, Jesus Christ triumphed over all the powers and principalities of this dark age. That the strong man has been bound and his house is being plundered. And his doom has been proclaimed already. It's over. Right? History still has to catch up, but it's, it's done. It is finished, he said. There is none that has his power or his authority who is due the honor and glory that he is. And so all should bow the knee. All should submit to him. Why do men bow before kings? To show their allegiance, to show that they are submissive to the one who is to rule. But it's not just that, right? Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this is to the glory of the Father. How do you glorify God? This, this is important because it's central to what we're made for, to glorify God. But this is also true of everyone, right? Every person that has ever existed was made to glorify God. And what we do is we seek out our own ways to do that. Right? We, we seek to glorify God how we want. But how will he be glorified? By confessing his son. That's the way. There's no other way. That is the way that you can glorify God. By confessing the Son. You can't worship God how you just want to. You can't say, well, I feel like God wants from me this. You can say that if it's confessing the Son, right? If it's, if it's all centered on the Son of God. If it's centered on Jesus Christ who is Lord. But if it is anything else, right? If it is following your own heart any other direction. If it is worshiping any number of false or demonic gods of other religions. There's no such thing as somebody that, that follows God through their false religion apart from the Son of God. No. How do you glorify God? It's through the Son. It's by confessing the Son who is Lord. Everyone should submit and confess Him. But not everyone has or will before His coming. But they will at His coming. Right? This is clear in Scripture. Everyone will ultimately bow the knee and confess him. We're told that the Son has been given a rod of iron, a scepter, with which he will crush those who oppose him. Right? He will destroy the, the kingdoms of men that rise up against him. He will crush the knees of those who won't submit to him. 
He will have them confess. That doesn't mean that everyone will ultimately repent, but they will be forced on the day of judgment to admit that he, in fact, is Lord, right? To actually submit, in a sense, to his judgment, right? They will not serve him. In fact, they will go on hating him forever. That's what hell is. Hell is where those who continue to refuse for all of eternity to serve him go. That's where those reside who refuse to praise him. Right? Those who choose their sin over Christ now will keep choosing their sin over him. It's not as though there's just a cutoff point and then all of a sudden everybody wants to repent. Right? If only there was that little bit more. No, we're told one of the reasons that Christ is slow in his return is so that everyone will repent. Right? It's so that any who he has called to himself will have the chance to repent. C.S. Lewis says that hell will be the only place in the afterlife where the door will be locked from the inside. The idea being, when you're in hell, you don't want God there. Right? You're trying to get away from him continually, forever, as far into the outer darkness as you can go. But what we have here is the fact that every ultimately everyone everyone will in a sense bow the knee and confess so i said at the beginning that whether or not you will bow is not in question right it's going to happen the question is how and likewise when that's what the passage says paul will go on actually to apply this to say everyone should bow the knee everyone should confess that he is lord And he'll go on to apply this to the Philippians in saying, therefore, as you have always obeyed, keep obeying. There's a little bit of a paraphrase. But just keep keep going, right? Even when I'm not with you, I want you to keep obeying. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. You should submit yourself to him and confess him as Lord. And you who are here we already said briefly you who are believers you are you're doubly his right you are his in creation because you are made in his image everything you are and have been made to be is from him and for him right and through him that he is holding you together he maintains your life but you're doubly his because you've also been redeemed. You have been bought back. This is what redeem means, to buy back. It's as if you have sold yourself into slavery when you belong to him all the time. And he still bought you back at the price of his own blood. He has redeemed you. You belong to him. Let's say that you're here today and you know you haven't actually submitted your life to his rule. And you may think he is a cruel Lord, if he is that at all, that he would force others to do his will, that he would take away your autonomy. But ultimately, that is to, that is to maintain a kind of blindness, right? to force blindness on yourself, because that's not what's happening at all. That's not what's going on at all. I think we've probably all worked places where there's someone who 
no matter what the authority, right, the boss, no matter what he does, they complain, right? No matter what happens, they're unhappy, right? The, the exact opposite decision could be made at any point, and no matter what decision is made, they complain about it, they talk about how it's the wrong decision, how they would have done it different, right? They're always unhappy with the decisions that are made. And they just, that's, it's just no matter what, they're just gonna complain, they're just gonna fight it, they just have ultimately a bad attitude about what's going on, right? They, they have opportunity to be happy, to be content, to work hard, and they just refuse. Like a teenager mad at her parents who have given her everything just because they say no one time. That's what this is like. To hear about the lordship of Christ and think, what a tyrant, right, that he would take autonomy away from me. No, no, he is freeing you from bondage. I pray that God would open your eyes because he is a gracious and kind master and Lord. He is a joy to work for. He gives us a share in his honor and glory. And what kind of a master does that? Right? What kind of a Lord would not just have servants but then allow them to participate in the fullness of his riches and his glory and his honor, bestowing upon them glory and honor. Who does that? He does. Sin won't. See, we say, we like to talk about autonomy or, you know, us kind of being free to be ourselves, but ultimately you will serve someone. You will have some master. Often it will be your own desires, right? Your own flesh. But you think that serving those desires, serving your flesh, will turn out well for you? Right? How has that ever worked? You submit yourself to your desires, and ultimately they just take you straight to a kind of hell. You give yourself over because of a promise, some kind of inherent promise. Maybe it's, it's pleasure or it's power or it's contentment some kind of peace and it just it never actually gets there right you never end up there you never end up where you think that you will i started i just watched the very beginning of it but i started to watch a documentary this past week on meth and uh, there were some interviews with people that have have uh, um, in various ways struggled with meth addiction and they talk about how you know, there's various reasons why they would maybe first try meth. Maybe they were, sometimes they said they were literally just bored. Sometimes it was like, well, everyone else, right, everybody else around me is doing it, right, I want to be a part of this group. So they're searching for some kind of community. Otherwise, it's just, I want some kind of pleasure, right? I know what a high is like. I've been told that this is even better, so I want to try it. I want some kind of, of pleasure, fleshly pleasure. But so many of them, describe that as it's almost as soon as they started to go down this road, what they described, they, they used the, the word. I don't think that many of them were, were Christians, but what they describe is they say, it took me straight to hell. Right? Like I, I went into hell. Like this is what it was like. This was the experience that I had is it turned my life into a kind of hell where I was trapped by my desires, right? By my flesh. 
That's where this leads. Flesh, the flesh is not a, a good master. Right? It's oppressive. It's something we need to be freed from. And obviously, math is something that's pretty extreme, right? It's easy to sit back and say, well, that's extreme. My sins aren't like that. No, they actually are. They might work a little bit more slowly, but that is where your sin will lead as well. Do you think that Satan is a better master or any number of demonic false gods available? Right? Well, all of them will take your life and give you nothing. Whereas Jesus Christ gave his life and will give you everything. Do you think that you yourself will be a better master? Well, again, the very idea that you could just serve yourself, it won't work. You were made to serve another. You will always serve something else, someone else. But even if you could, how, how well would that work? How has your life been so far? How have you managed your life so far? Right? Are you telling me that you don't make significant mistakes? That you've never destroyed relationships? That you aren't insecure about the decisions you make? That No, we, we do not even rule our own lives well now. To think that we could be a kind of lord or master in total is absurd. But he is a good master. Right? He is a good lord, a good king. He manages what is under his authority with justice and righteousness. Remember what we read at the very beginning in the call to worship. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne, of his rule. Everything he does is in accordance with them. Everything in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he didn't just go sell it all off and get rid of it. He hasn't destroyed it all. Right? Instead, he has begun to fix what is in disrepair. Right? Where there is rebellion, he has begun to remove it. He has begun to bring light and truth to every part of his estate. Jesus didn't say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you're going to wish that you had not crossed me. He could have. That's not what he said. No, he said, therefore, go and make disciples. Right? Teach them everything I've commanded. Go and bring them into my love and teach them my love. He could wipe it all clean. He could tear it all down. He could fire everyone literally and start all over. But he doesn't. Instead, he has sent us as his representatives to proclaim his lordship and bring everyone in to see that he indeed is a good lord. One of the beautiful things about the Apostles' Creed is that when we confess that regularly, we confess not just that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is true and right and good, but that he is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And the attitude that you should have as a Christian is not, oh, I have to serve him. I have to do what he says. No, it's, it's I get to. Oh, I get to serve him again today. What a good Lord that we serve, who's loved us so much that he purchased us at the cost of his own life. What human master would do that? 
And yet our divine master, who had so much more to lose in doing it, did it for us. What a good Lord we serve. What a good Lord we serve who has not just left us blind in the world to make our own way, blind whether or not what we're doing is going to please him or not, but rather he has given us guidance and instruction. He's given us his law, his word, and even more than that, he has given us his own presence by his Holy Spirit. What a good Lord you get to serve that actually brings you into his throne room. And as you grow in your rule of what he has given you to manage for him, he then gives you more. He gives you more of it. More of the benefit, more of the glory. If he is your Lord, it means that you are not your own. And that shouldn't bother you. It means that he gets to direct you and command you, and that you love that you get to obey him, that you delight in obeying him. If you have been in this church for a long time, if you grow up in this church, and all you learn is, all right, I have to do these certain things, right? Jesus is Lord, which means I know all right, these are the things I have to do. And that's it, right? It just stops there. Well, that's, that's a shame, right? That means that we have failed. Because we don't want to just, well, here's this way that I just do what he says. No, we want to love what he says. We want to love what he tells us to do. Right? That's, that's the heart that you are to have. I don't just hear and say, okay, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a burden. He tells me I need to live this way. I guess I'll do it, at least in a certain outward obedience, even though my heart is not in it. No, you, he wants the heart too. Right? He wants all of you. He is your Lord. To the point where you would love getting to do what he says. Right? Because you have a changed heart. To where you think it's a joy, it's a privilege to serve God. And it is. It really is. It may not seem like it at times, but it really, truly is. To submit to him and confess that he is Lord means that you are not your own because you have been bought with a price. So all that you have is not yours. Right? Your money, your family, your time, your energy, your strength, your life. None of it belongs to you. You are a steward of it for a time. So you shouldn't have the mindset of, well, I just need to keep everything as much as possible. Right? I just need to protect it all, keep it close. No, you're a steward, right? You are here to use those things for his good, for his enjoyment, for his kingdom, and then you are gone. Just as he gave himself and was thus exalted, so we, in following him, are to give, right? To give everything, knowing that as we give it all up for him, for his glory, for his kingdom, that there is a much greater reward that he has waiting for us. When your attitude is one of building up for you, right? Keeping for you, right? Building up your kingdom, you will lose it all. 
But as a steward, you should be looking for ways. How do I, how do I build for him? How do I give for him? How do I give away as he gave away? Jesus Christ is Lord, so how do you best steward for him as opposed to yourself? This is what it means that he is Lord. Lord of your heart, Lord of everything you have. That's what we must mean when we say he is our Lord. And then that final piece, and we love it. We enjoy it. We love that we get to serve him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has been exalted. All will bow and confess it. And you should start now. He can be your Lord. And if he is, then you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And so your life should reflect that. You are to live accordingly. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do confess that you are Lord and we love that we get to serve you. And we do pray that where there are parts of us that continue to buck against your authority and fight against it, that you would teach us submission. That you would take any part of our life that we have tried to hold back from you and you would teach us that we are stewards of what is ultimately yours. We need your help in this. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take the words of this text and use them in order to shape and fashion us in your image. All for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.